Good morning, everybody. I hope everybody's staying cool. I'm very, very grateful for uh, air conditioning these days. Uh, this morning, we're continuing in our series on the Psalms. Uh, we're going to be going through the Psalms all summer. And uh, just a little bit of review. Um, this, this will be review for those of you who've been here before. Uh, the Psalms are songs. Uh, they were written as hymns or poems that oftentimes were set to music. They typically were sung or chanted as part of corporate worship. And the Psalms cover the full range of human emotion. They cover, they express every possible feeling a person could have as he or she relates to God. And as we've discussed in previous messages, the Psalms can be broken down into five basic categories. Now, there are some scholars that break them down into more, but for our purposes, five seems about right. Um, you have the laments. Those are Psalms that are written in the midst of dire circumstances, when the writer fears for his life and is crying out to God. There are Psalms of praise, in which the writer sees God for who he is and shouts out hymns of praise to his name. There are psalms of wisdom, those psalms that impart to us supernatural, common sense concepts. There are royal or messianic psalms, psalms that talk about the promise of a coming Messiah from God. And then there are psalms of thanksgiving, those psalms that thank God for who he is and what he has done. And during our series this summer, it's our intent to cover at least one psalm from each of these five categories. And thus far, since we started this series on June 3rd, we've done exactly that. Uh, we covered the laments, uh, we covered, had a psalm of praise, we had a psalm of wisdom. Last week, Michael McKittrick preached on a royal or messianic psalm, and today we're going to look at one of the Thanksgiving psalms. So if you have a Bible, please open it up to Psalm 136. And if you didn't bring a Bible, there should be a number of them in the racks in front of you. So uh, just go ahead and uh, grab one and open it up and follow along. In the Pew Bible, you will find Psalm 136 on page 520. But before we get going on digging into it, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to give us understanding. Father God, the passage of your holy word we are looking at today <coughs> is all about you. Give us understanding this morning as we read it so that by reading it, we might come to know you deeper and better. We ask this in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Okay, so as you look at this psalm, one of the things you're going to notice right off the bat is that this psalm is in the form of a called response. And it's written in such a way that there's a line of text followed by a response phrase. And in the case of Psalm 136, the response phrase is, for his steadfast love endures forever. Then there's another different line of text followed once again by the phrase, for his steadfast love endures forever. And the entire psalm goes on this way right through to the end. And this would seem to indicate that Psalm 136 
was intended to be used as a responsive reading in a worship service of some type or some type of congregational setting. In other words, the worship leader would read the line of text and then the congregation as a whole would repeat the refrain, for his steadfast love endures forever. And I thought it would be good for us to read this psalm together in that way this morning. So I hope you're up for that because we're going to give it a try. Now, for some of you, this might be a little uncomfortable because it harkens back to religious traditions that you may be trying to forget, but this type of thing is good. If you look back in the history of the church, um, confessions and creeds were a big part of worship. And these types of responsive readings were also a big part of it. This one's in scripture. So as we do this, think about the words that are being said. Keep in mind that these are the very words of God that we are saying here, and we are worshiping God together by reading these words. So at this time, I'd like to ask you all to stand up for the reading of God's word. And what we're going to do, the lines will be up on the board there. I will read the leader lines, and you all will read the all lines. So here we go. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Give thanks to the God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. To him who alone does great wonders. To him who by understanding made the heavens. To him who spread out the earth above the waters. To him who made the great lights. The sun to rule over the day. The moon and stars to rule over the night. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt. And brought Israel out from among them. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm. To him who divided the Red Sea in two. And made Israel pass through the midst of it. But overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea. To him who led his people through the wilderness. To him who struck down great kings. And killed mighty kings. Sihon, king of the Amorites. And Og, king of Bashan. And gave their land as a heritage. A heritage to Israel, his servant. It is he who remembered us in our low estate. And rescued us from our foes. He who gives food to all flesh. Give thanks to the God of heaven. 
This is God's word for God's people. Him who has ears to hear, let him hear it. You may be seated. As people with a sin nature, we are generally not predisposed to being thankful. We are selfish and we want our desires, wants, needs, appetites, and even our whims to be satisfied. We want what we want. We typically will do anything we can to get what we want. And when we finally do get what we want, the idea of being thankful for it is typically not one of the first thoughts to cross our minds. Giving thanks comes hard to us. You know, we have to teach the concept to our children. You know, you parents, how many times have you uttered the phrase, now what do you say to your kids when someone gives them a gift or does something nice for them? What do you say, little Susie? And little Susie says, thank you. But little Susie's really saying it. She doesn't really want to say it. She's saying it under duress because mom told her to say it. She's only saying it because she has to. So we try our best to teach our kids thankfulness. And we hope that the practice will carry over into adulthood. But often it doesn't. And the reason it doesn't is because we are self-centered, sinful people who are born with a sin nature. Thankfulness is not something that comes naturally to us. And it seems to me we especially have to work at it when it comes to thanking God for what he has done and for the blessings he has given us. So often our prayers are really nothing more than shopping lists of things that we would like God to do for us, for our loved ones, for our friends. You know, we have illnesses and injuries, lots and lots of illnesses and injuries. They probably form the bulk of our prayer requests. We have all kinds of crises, life crises. Cars break down, jobs are lost, roofs leak, basements flood. The list is endless. And there's nothing wrong at all with asking for prayer about these things. Not at all. But in the midst of all the asking, I think sometimes we forget to express thankfulness. Thankfulness not just for answered prayers, like a fixed roof, but ordinary, everyday things that we take for granted and barely give a thought to. I think that because of that, God in his divine providence has given us psalms of thankfulness. He's given us these words in Holy Scripture to guide us in how we can relate to him in a thankful manner. So with that in mind, what does Psalm 136 have to say to us? Well, the first and probably most obvious thing is the repetition. The phrase, for his steadfast love endures forever, is repeated 26 times in this psalm. You guys just repeated it that many times. Now, why is that phrase repeated so many times? Well, it could be that it's just a literary form of the psalm. Uh, you know, they're songs, they're, they're poems, they're lyrics that are sometimes put to music or recited as poetry. And repetition is often a very common way of expressing things in music or in poetry. Most songs that you hear have some form of repetition. Phrases, lyrics that are repeated over and over again during the course of the song. But another reason for repetition is emphasis. Often when things are repeated, it's because the message is something that the writer or the speaker wants to hammer home. 
and make sure that his readers or listeners won't forget. For his steadfast love endures forever seems to be something that God wants to impress upon us by putting it into this psalm as often as he does. The phrase is the backbone of the psalm. It's the theme, it's the main point that the psalmist wants you to remember. God's steadfast love endures forever. Now the phrase itself pretty much speaks for itself. There's not much here that requires commentary or explanation. I looked at it in other English translations and it's all very, very similar. His loving kindness endures forever, I think the NIV calls it. Um, But the ESV, which we use, his steadfast love endures forever, that's it. God loves, he is love. And his love is a kind love. It's an enduring love. It's a love that goes on forever. It always has been and always will be. The love of God is as eternal as God himself. And in this psalm, in addition to hammering that home, we are shown some of the ways God has expressed or displayed his steadfast love that endures forever. And in all of those ways, we're encouraged to give him thanks. So let's take a look and see the ways God expressed his steadfast love that are set out for us here. Of necessity, any reason we have to thank God has to start with God himself. They start with his very nature. They start with who he is. (coughs) Verse 1 says, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. God is good. Period. We can go home now. That's really, that's it. God is good. You don't need to know any more than that, but it does go on. You know, years ago, I went to Promise Keepers, and there was a refrain that we said there. Uh, Some of you may know it. God is good all the time. All the time? Let's do that again. God is good all the time? You bet. And that alone makes God worthy of of being thanked. And being good is a rare thing. We get some very interesting insight on this from Psalm 53. It says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have been corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Jesus himself said in Mark 10, 18, as he was talking to the rich young man, he said, no one is good except God alone. So we can see here from scripture that God is alone in his goodness. No one is good except God. Now, you might say, well, what about the good people that I know? You know, surely there's, there's good people. You know, what about my grandma? What about, you know, my, my dear sweet mother or that guy at work that's so kind to everybody? You know, isn't he good? Okay, but in comparison to what? To other people? When you do that, you're comparing people to people. And people are not the standard of what defines good. 
God is the standard. And the Bible says, God's word says, no one is good except God alone. In scripture, we can see a repeating theme in which light is associated with good and darkness is associated with evil. 1 John 1, 5 says, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. He is totally light, totally good, and there is no darkness, there is no evil. And on the other hand, we read in John 3, 19, people, people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. People love the dark. They love the evil because their works are evil. They don't like the light. You know, you ever thought of why do most burglaries happen at night? Because it's dark. The bad guys think they can hide in the dark. They think no one will see them in the dark. When it's dark, they figure there's a better chance they can steal the stuff they want to steal without anybody seeing them. But then when the police come up and they shine a spotlight on the guys, they're suddenly out in the open and their evil is exposed for everyone to see. John 1, 4 through 5 says, when speaking about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus was the light that exposed the darkness. And then James 1.17 tells us, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So not only is there no darkness in God, but according to this verse, where it says, notice here it says, There is no variation or shadow due to change. God's goodness is so great and overpowering that he doesn't even cast a shadow. Everything about him is good. Everything. And every good gift comes from his hand. But God is also worthy of thanks because as verses 2 and 3 tell us, he is the God of gods and the Lord of lords. He is supreme. He is superior. He is overall. He is bigger. He is greater. He is better and more wonderful than anybody or anything we could ever imagine. He is supreme. And no one and no entity outranks him. He is the best. In fact, he is so far beyond and better than anything that we would ever attempt to compare him to that there's no point in doing any comparing. We can thank God simply because God is God, for his steadfast love endures forever. But not only that, but we can thank God because he does great wonders. I'm going to read the next few verses here without his steadfast love endures forever line, just to give it a little more clarity. And what we see here are actually a series of statements about God's creative nature. To him who alone does great wonders, to him who by understanding made the heavens, to him who spread out the earth above the waters, to him who made the great lights, the sun to rule over the day, and the moon and the stars to rule over the night. One of the first things you might have noticed here is not only does God do great wonders, but he is the only one who does great wonders. No one else can do the things that he can do. Verse 5 tells us that by understanding, he made the heavens. He made the earth. He made the waters. He made the sun and the moon and the stars. He made them out of nothing. 
No raw materials. Nothing. Now, I'm not sure what the writer of this psalm meant by saying it was by understanding that God made the heavens, but I'm going to take a stab at trying to figure it out. Uh, These thoughts are entirely my own, and so if they're wrong or off base, just treat them as such, but I'm going to give it a shot here. Normally, when somebody makes something, they're skilled. They know how to do whatever it is they do. They understand how to make whatever it is they make. I had... an uncle who used, <laughs> excuse me, who used to make furniture. He would take wood and he'd cut it and he'd carve it and he'd shape it into tables, chairs, bookshelves, uh, all kinds of things. And he was very skilled at it. He knew how to do it. He understood wood and he understood which types of wood were best for which types of furniture. My uncle displayed understanding in the way he made things. Now, there was a pretty big to-do this week. President Trump was here for the groundbreaking at Foxconn. And this is a really big deal, this this plant going up down there. And for those of you who might not be familiar with the company, Foxconn is a Taiwanese company that makes the LCD touchscreens that we all have on our phones, these things. They also make computer screens and certain kinds of specialty flat screen TVs for use in the healthcare industry, for surgeries and things like that. It's all very, very high-tech stuff. Well, the products Foxconn makes are all designed by very smart people. You have smart people putting them together too, but the really, really sharp folks are the ones who come up with the ideas and that actually design this stuff. Hard work, skill, and brilliant thinking goes into designing the touchscreen for a phone. Have you ever stopped to think about that? You know, some of us older folks, technology is just amazing. If you'd told me years ago that I'd have a handheld computer in my pocket that would have a screen on it, that when I put my finger on it, I could move stuff around and I could flip pages in a book. I could have a whole library on my phone, and I could flip the pages. I could listen to music, stop and start it, rewind it, fast forward it, movies. Um, I could pinch it and, and, and zoom in or, or whatever it is. Is it zoom in or zoom out and then spread it out? I'm still getting that all straight. You know, I'm, but it's, it's amazing. That's an amazing adventure or invention. And how does that happen? Who dreams up stuff like that and has the knowledge and the understanding to actually make it happen? I have to believe that somewhere there's a guy that has a patent for the touchscreen on a phone. And just for fun, let's engage in a little fictional fantasy with me here, okay? Suppose, just suppose this person, the guy that invented it, or woman, I don't know, but in my example, it's going to be a guy, okay? Um, He goes to Washington, D.C. to apply for a patent for his touchscreen that he's invented. So he, he looks for and he finds the U.S. patent office, and it's in a big marble building with marble pillars because every building in Washington is a big marble building with marble pillars. And, and this guy goes in with his plans under his arm, and he finds, okay, in the directory patent office, room 287. So he goes over there, goes in, and rings the bell for service at the counter. 
Well, the patent clerk comes out from behind the counter, and he's wearing one of those green translucent eye shades, and he's got a, a bib on, and he's chewing a ham sandwich, and because he, he's on his lunch hour, and he says, "Ah, can I help you?" The guy says, "Yeah, I've got a, I've got an invention here that I want a patent." So he spreads his plans out and proceeds to start explaining the touch screen to this patent clerk. And the patent clerk's looking at it, he's eating his sandwich, and he said, I can't give you a patent for that. And I says, what do you mean you can't give me a patent for that? I invented that. <laughs> the patent clerk says, no, <laughs> no, you didn't invent that. This was the result of eons, billions of years of electronic evolution. You didn't invent that. It started out billions of years ago with just little scraps of copper that washed up on a beach and eventually turned itself into wires and then eventually found its way, electricity found its way in. The guy said, that can't happen, but I invented this. What are you talking about? A lot of thought went into this. And he said, no, 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 no. It just happened. It's ludicrous. It's ludicrous. iPhone touchscreens don't just happen spontaneously as a result of eons of electronic evolution. There was thought that went into them. There was intelligence that went into them. Skill went into them. And understanding went into them. And it's the same thing with the universe. It didn't just happen. By understanding, God made the heavens. Simply by speaking, he made the sun, the moon, and the stars. By his word, he called into creation, all of creation. There's no other way to explain it. And it all came from nothing. God spoke it into existence with skill and knowledge and understanding. It's ridiculous to claim that there is no God. In fact, Psalm 53 that we read earlier said, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And that is just so, so true. Matt Jans pointed out very eloquently a couple of weeks ago that there is no such thing as an atheist. Romans 1 says that God's existence is obvious to everyone. No one can deny it. What people do is suppress the obvious and claim that the obvious doesn't exist. And that's precisely the prevailing view of a lot of scientists today. The popular astronomer Carl Sagan used to pride himself on being completely open-minded when it came to science. He always said that he was willing to go wherever the scientific evidence took him. And after all, when you boil it down, science is about looking at things we can see and asking the question, how did this get this way? You then make observations and you gather data and you attempt to answer those questions. Yet Sagan never, ever would even entertain the thought that a creator God was one of the possible ways that this all could have happened. He wouldn't, he, he wouldn't even acknowledge that it was possible and then reject it. He wouldn't even put it in with the possibilities. The general consensus is there is no God. I was looking at our dog the other night. 
Johnny is a toy poodle. He weighs about eight pounds, and he's the cutest little guy you've ever seen in your life. He is also a work of wonder created by God. And I looked at him, and I was wondering, what makes him go? You know, we don't put any batteries in him. We don't plug him in at night to charge him up during the night. He walks around, he eats, he barks, he sleeps, he poops, he pees, he responds to us. If we ask him if he wants to go for a walk, he gets all excited, he knows what we're talking about, and even he's gotten to the point where if we, Lori and I are discussing amongst ourselves, between ourselves, you know, do you, do you think we should take uh, Johnny for a W-A-L-K? He knows what we're talking about and his tail starts wagging and he gets excited. He's, learned, he's figured out how to spell. God did all of that. And you think about it, what a marvelous engineering feat a dog is. And that's just a dog. And we're not even scratching the surface. Look at yourself. Take them in here. Hold your hand out. Look at your hand. I want everybody to look at their hands. What an incredible engineering marvel the human hand is. All of the joints, the ligaments, the bones, and I'm not real up on all the anatomy, so forgive me those of you that are, but it's, it's unbelievable. All the, the things that work, that your brain sends commands to your hand and your hand does them. And then look at your fingerprints, the whirls and the swirls in your fingerprints. Those are unique to you. There is no one alive or dead that has the same fingerprint patterns that you do. So while all of our hands are the same, we've got the same bones, the same muscles, the same, they work the same, but across all of us, the fingerprints are all different. They're all unique. That doesn't just happen. It doesn't happen by accident. Look around you. You have eyes that can see. And God's given you two of them so that you have depth perception, so you don't run into things and trip over things. Isn't that, Isn't that incredible and creative? Look at the colors around you. God created color. You know, there is no operational reason for color. God could have created the whole world in monochrome, in black and white, shades of gray. But he made colors and he made beauty so that we, we could see it, we could appreciate it. And don't even get me started on flavors and taste. He gave us the ability. You know, you know God could have just made one kind of food. That's it, this is food. And we're gonna call it food, and it's got everything that these people need, and they're going to eat the same thing every day. But God created a multitude of things that, that we can eat, some of them good for us, and some of them, which I tend to favor, that aren't so good for us. He gave us the ability to distinguish between, let's say, a, a pizza from Marty's, a wonderful pizza from Marty's, or a cheap Roundy's frozen pizza from the grocery store. We can tell the difference between those. The flavor of the day at Oscars. And then there's God's gift of fried fish and barbecue sauce, which is one of Pastor Luke's favorites, but we're going to just keep that between us. Don't tell him I told you that. God did all of that. We can thank God because he is a God who creates and works marvelous wonders. For his steadfast love endures forever. 
But God can also be thanked because he cares for and rescues his people. There are loads of examples throughout scripture of God rescuing and caring for his people, but the psalmist takes time here to point us to just a few. I think it's interesting and perhaps even a little shocking to note that God will not hesitate to resort to killing people when it comes to executing justice or caring for his people, the people that he chose for his glory and bringing them to safety. We find the first of these examples in verses 10 through 12. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt and brought Israel out from among them with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. This is referring to the last of the ten plagues that God brought upon Egypt when Pharaoh refused Moses' repeated appeals to let the Israelites go free. You can find this account in Exodus 11 and in the chapters before that. Now, you may recall that in the process of coaxing Pharaoh to let the people of Israel leave Egypt, God brought a series of plagues on the people of Egypt. And the first of these was when God used Aaron's staff to turn all of the water in the Nile River to blood. After that, the land was overrun with frogs, followed by gnats, and then flies. And then God caused all of the Egyptian livestock to die. And after that, the people all broke out in boils. Then there was a hailstorm like nothing the world has ever seen, followed by locusts and darkness, until finally there was the tenth and the last plague, the killing of all of the firstborn human beings and animals in the land of Egypt. God instructed the Israelites to kill lambs and put the blood of the lambs on their doorposts and lintels of the houses where they were living in order to avoid the destruction that was coming upon Egypt. And thus was born the Passover, when God passed over the houses with the blood-stained doorways. God was caring for and rescuing his people with blood the blood of the firstborn, and the blood of the lambs, because his steadfast love endures forever. And then we have the exodus through the wilderness from Egypt to the land God promised to his people through Abraham. To him who divided the Red Sea in two and made Israel pass through the midst of it, but overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea. To him who led his people through the wilderness... God cared for his people as they spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness, going to the promised land. God literally divided the Red Sea. He opened it up. There were two walls of water. And then there was a dry pathway through which the Israelites traveled. And then after they had all passed through, God caused the waters to crash back over Pharaoh's troops, drowning them. The Israelites went through rebellion in the desert, but God didn't abandon them. They complained about the food, but God didn't abandon them. They worshiped other gods, but God didn't abandon them. His steadfast love endured forever. Then we move on to verses 17 to 22, where we read, To him who struck down great kings and killed mighty kings, 
Sihon, the king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to Israel, his servant. This refers back to the book of Numbers, chapter 21. But we're not going to take time to read those stories today. The bottom line on them, though, is that nothing stands in God's way. Nothing. He, when he is determined to do something, he does it. And one of the things he is determined to do is to glorify himself through his people, the people he has chosen. Now we come to verses 23 and 24, and these verses, I think, apply directly to us here in 2018. It is he who remembered us in our lowest state and rescued us from our foes. God has remembered us, people of Woodridge, in our lowest state, and he has rescued us from our foes. Now, what foes has God rescued us from? It certainly might not look to you like he's rescued you from the ambitious co-worker who consistently tries to throw you under the bus for advancement of his own career. Nor has he rescued you from the angry neighbor that's suing you because part of your garage sits over his property boundary and onto his land. Those disputes are still going on. Now, God has rescued us from a bigger foe. In fact, it's the biggest foe of all. The biggest enemy man has is God himself. Scripture talks repeatedly about how apart from Christ, we are enemies of God. Without Christ, we aren't just estranged from God or separated from God. We are his enemies, his foes. And God, in his steadfast love that endures forever, has rescued us from his own wrath. Think about that. The thing we needed rescuing from was God himself. Because apart from Christ, we are under his wrath. And through the cross of Christ, God rescued us from his wrath and reconciled us to himself. With the death and resurrection of Jesus, God removed the enmity that existed between him and us. In Romans 5, 8 through 11, we read, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Once again, God demonstrated at the cross that he would not back away from shedding of blood or even from killing the innocent if that was what it took to enact justice and to rescue his people for the glory of his name. There was no one more innocent and sinless than Jesus Christ, God's very own son, and he was put to death 
to rescue us from God's wrath. So in a way, we're like modern-day Israelites. We've been rescued from captivity, and we are on our way, Christians, to a wonderful promised land that when we get there will prove to be beyond our wildest dreams. And that brings us to the last point, verse 26. We thank God because he is the God of heaven. If you are a Christian, you are trusting in the shed blood of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and for your reconciliation with God. Heaven is your home. It's the place that you were made for. It's the promised land that awaits all people who are trusting in Christ. Christian, heaven is where your citizenship lies. Heaven is your home. Heaven is where our loyalties are. And God himself is our king. And he's a king who doesn't tweet. He's given us a whole book. He's given us a book of his words. He doesn't lie. He is perfect. He is above all. He is good. We can trust him. He loves us. All the evil we get frustrated with. I get frustrated when I look at the evil that's out there in the world. That's not allowed where we come from. That's not allowed in our home country. We're we're citizens of the kingdom of heaven. That's where our citizenship lies. Revelation 21 gives us a wonderful glimpse of heaven. The apostle John was taken to heaven by Jesus, and the book of Revelation contains John's account of what he saw. Verses 1 through 4 of Revelation 21 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Then a little further down in verses 22 through 27, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Please note here, It never gets dark in heaven. There's nothing evil there. And the reason it never gets dark isn't because the 
the sun is shining. The sun isn't needed in heaven. It never gets dark because God himself is the light. God lights the place up with his glory and his goodness. He is the God of heaven. And that is reason to thank him for his steadfast love endures forever. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are God. We thank you that you are good. We thank you that you are supreme, that you are above all things. We thank you that you are skilled and glorious. You're the creator who created all things for your glory. We thank you that you are the God who protects, cares for, and rescues your people. You are the God who has saved us from your wrath through the shed blood of your Son and has given us the Holy Spirit as our strength and comforter. You did all of this because your steadfast love endures forever. And we do thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.